my dad has always been a huge proponent of study things that will make you think as opposed to study things that will make you think a certain way, uh, which I think is a really interesting sort of takeaway. And he was a philosophy major before he ended up getting a going and doing a business degree at, at Columbia, but really laying the foundation of thinking. And 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 learn you using philosophy as a way to actually jumpstart your mind about questioning things and thinking through really complex ideas that you're really not going to get a chance to do that again other than being you know, in college and in that in that environment. Future podcast. Today's guest is what smart people would call a veritable polymath. He runs three companies that each connect to a different facet of the entertainment industry, and he runs them well, securing about 50 to 60 media deals per year, and that is a lot of deals. He and Chris discuss both the business and creative sides of entertainment and give us a nice peek into the world of filmmaking. And when I say peek, I really mean that they go incredibly deep like nuts and bolts of what it takes to produce a film. It's pretty eye-opening to hear about how all of it works. They talk about how Netflix deals work. I'm looking at you, Tiger King. The value of never-ending curiosity and why you should learn how to play the orchestra and not just the instrument. Also, there is some light swearing in this episode, so heads up if there's kids around. All right, grab some popcorn, put on your best listening ears, and please enjoy our conversation with Matthew Helderman. Matthew, thank you very much for doing the show with me. For people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself and tell them what you do? Sure. Um, so my, my name is Matthew Helderman, and I run three companies, all in the media and entertainment business. Now, the first is a company called Buffalo 8, a production and a post-production company. So simply meaning we create content and we finish and, and deliver content to distributors. The second is a company called Bondit Media Capital. Uh, we're a media financing company. So literally financing production as well as providing capital to middle market media businesses, everything from podcast companies, film and television, all the way to live events and music. And then the third company is a company called ABS Payroll, which is a 30-year-old entertainment payroll company that we bought in about 2016 that is over in Burbank. And it's about the, the least sexy part of the entertainment business, but we can certainly dive into why it's such an important piece of the ecosystem we've built. I see. I, I remain skeptical on the last one, but we'll see what happens. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm um, I'm really interested in what you do, how you do the business of filmmaking. I think our audience is going to be really interested. So uh, for for people who don't understand, what, what is it like behind the scenes when you say you're, you're financing um, films and productions? Like, wh- how does that happen? Is it your money that you're spending? And, and how do you make your money back? What projects do you decide to finance? Etc. So, give us the like the overview of how this works. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, I know we have other topics as well to discuss. So, I'll try and give the uh, abridged, footnoted version <laughs> of uh, of film and television financing. I think it's it's honestly uh, first off, it, it is our capital. Um, yeah, I started Buffalo Eight in college. As Buffalo Eight grew and grew and grew um, out in, I went to school in Chicago, but we moved the company to LA right after graduation. 
and my co-founding partner and I were producing content boots on the ground and sub million dollar, sub two, three million dollar type movies. And you're really just learning the real process of how films are made, uh, which I think the easiest way to sort of sync up uh, what, what that experience is like is you're basically just managing almost like a real estate or construction project uh, mm-hmm. and then managing many different types of personalities from someone that's making you know, $500,000 a day uh, to someone that's working you know, making $500 that same day right next to each other on the same set and the expectations that each of them and their respective unions ultimately have for them and their experience. And so those first several years, we were really just building Buffalo 8 through the experience of making content with other people's money. People were, were coming to us and wanting us to produce content. And we had built a pretty reliable brand as trustworthy producers, both that understood the creative side, but also had a business sense. Um, both my partner and I were, were born and raised in Connecticut, families in sort of more traditional financial and business backgrounds, but we loved content media. And so it was a perfect sort of mix, if you will, that brought us together in college to, to launch that company. Um, mm-hmm. We got out of school in 2011. And at that time, banks had already largely started, if not had already exited media and one-off film and television financing due to the credit crisis of 08, 09, and right. the, the restrictions that had been put around what banks could do in terms of risk-taking and so on. And so we ultimately realized, not because we were so smart, simply sort of just scratching our own itch, there needed to be a more streamlined and more reliable source of capital in the market. Uh, and it took about a year to sort of flesh out what that model was going to look like. Originally, we thought it was going to look more like an equity fund. So you think sort of venture capital, you know, you, you put money in and take crazy risk for crazy upside. Uh, but very quickly after that, both you know, talking with uh, family and friends and, and colleagues that we knew who had raised funds, sort of realized that equity financing in media is something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Um, and that's sort of the, the misnomer of the entertainment business is that folks sort of look at it and read the you know, Monday morning box office results and sort of look at it and say, oh my gosh, these returns are just astronomical. But there's so many layers of uh, hands out in between those dollars coming in versus actually paying out the person that invested in the content that you realize, unlike technology and venture capital, the equity actually sits at the very bottom of the waterfall. So you think of like the person that put the first money in Facebook or Uber, they have ultimately the, the largest risk capital. So their premium on the exit or an IPO is actually the largest. Whereas in film, the equity is buried so far beneath mezzanine capital and then senior debt capital that it made it makes no sense. But for whatever reason, the business has always been structured this way. And so we sort of realized, all right, let's, let's raise a debt fund. And that became you know, what is Bondit. Um, Bondit now has done somewhere between 150 to $160 million of on-balance sheet financing over the last eight years. Uh, and so all that really means is we went out in early days, we were financed by a group of high net worth individuals that bought pieces of Bondit, that we had the ability to either roll them into common equity, um, or we could take them out after three years of operating the business, uh, sort of prove whether or not we could prove out the thesis of the company and then raise um, more institutionalized capital. Luckily, we were able to do that. Um, and in 2017, we sold half of Bondit to a company called Accord Financial, who are a publicly traded non-bank lending company based in Toronto and in New York, about a just shy of about a billion dollar balance sheet. 
um, mm-hmm. and they bought half of Bondit, and that gave us a, a, not only an equity injection, but an ability to go put a very large credit facility in place to support our financing and production activities. And so everything we fund is with our own capital, sits on our balance sheet, and our team members oversee those projects, whether loosely and passively, if we sort of have production partners that we trust and it can be a more hands-off experience, or projects that require us to be more heavily involved. Uh, And as it's scaled, it's definitely become um, a challenge to sort of balance how you think about portfolio and investment allocation into media projects. But it's all about the security of the structure and the distribution agreements you're able to negotiate prior to actually going into production. Um, And now, as I said, it's scaled up to 50, 60 film and TV and media deals we do per year. And so it requires pretty much everyone on the team to be both a, uh, have 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 an equal parts uh, a focus on both the deal front and the creative front to, again, sort of go back to that, uh, that original thesis that was really the entertainment business is just balancing relationships uh, and balancing people's expectations to, to get through production. Wow. Okay. That was a lot to process and you did that flawlessly. I have to say you, you dropped a lot of different concepts that was like just hovering right above my head here. <laughs> and it seems like you're talking about two, at least in my opinion, two very different worlds. And I want to try and help our audience to kind of understand everything that you just said. So there's this part that you're in school and you're doing production and post-production. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious because it didn't seem to line up with the bio that I read about you <laughs> in, in your studies in philosophy. So how does a, a person in philosophy get into filmmaking? Uh, when How did that happen? Yeah. So I was always obsessed with content, um, You know, truly always obsessed with it. Uh, film and, and TV and music and um, like totally geeking out over building a gigantic music library and a vinyl library as a teenager, like totally into it. Um, but you grow up on the East Coast in sort of a very financially focused area of Connecticut where almost everyone's parents and everyone you're around work in one way or another in some sort of institutional or corporate level of finance, either in New York or in Connecticut. And so osmosis sort of sets in and you you just you end up sort of taking in into yourself an understanding of certain aspects of, of finance and business. And it's sort of the, the natural thing that you'll go on to study. And, and most of my friends did. And uh, most of that sort of area uh, ends up sort of looking pretty and, and sounding pretty similar because of that. I think what was different about me is I played hockey and I got recruited to play hockey out at a school in um, Illinois, in Chicago for, for, for college. And hockey was my life. Um, I and I was studying at that point. I was, uh, I was a business, I was an economics major declared for my freshman and sophomore year sort of going down that track with a philosophy minor. And but my dad has always been a huge proponent of study things that will make you think as opposed to study things that will make you think a certain way, uh, which I think is a really mm. interesting sort of takeaway. Mm. And he was a philosophy major before he ended up getting a, you know, going in and doing a business degree at, at Columbia, but really laying the foundation of thinking and, and, and learning, you know, using philosophy as a way to actually jumpstart your mind about questioning things and thinking through really complex ideas that you're really not going to get a chance to do that again other than being you know, in college in that in that environment. Uh, and so that was really the, the catalyst of philosophy was, to me, probably the first time I really started thinking about my academic experience very differently. Um, and after my sophomore year, decided I was going to step away from, it was kind of almost like 
having a, having a quarter life crisis, if you will, because I was stepping away from hockey, realizing you know, college sports, you know, playing NCAA sports is, is a full-time job. And there were other passions I had and there were other things I wanted to experience. And I think at a certain point, I felt that I had learned the skills from that sport that I needed to sort of the, you know, take on for the rest of my life, that the teamwork, the work ethic, the drive, uh, the ability to sort of have adver- you know, be, be pretty uh, willing to, to deal with setbacks and adversity. But ultimately, when you're going to school and, and then also playing a sport that, that's taking up 40 plus hours a week, uh, it's hard to actually experience college. And I think it became clear that I was going to step away from hockey and I was also going to sort of make the bold call to my parents and say, I'm, I'm not going to major in economics uh, and I'm going to take some of this money that I've saved and launch a film company and shoot a, shoot a feature film. And you sort of expect that you know, my, my parents would react and say, you're, you're totally nuts. But I think they, they got it. I, mean, I think they, I think like a lot of parents, you, you know your children, even if your children don't really know themselves yet. And they knew mm-hmm. that that was kind of what I needed to do and, and that step I needed to take. And so I ended up, I think my, my major ended up being philosophy with uh, minors in English and business. I think I pivoted away from pure economics and during that time launched the company and um, had no ambition or, or grand ambition, I should say, to know what it would become. I mean, I always was super hungry and subscribed to the idea that you've got to look at opportunities where other people aren't. And I had friends that would say, oh, you're, you're nuts. You're going to LA. Why aren't you going back to you know, New York or Connecticut and you know, getting a a job at JP Morgan or, or Merrill or Goldman or, or one of those those summer programs. And I was literally building a company from a from an apartment in Chicago and then take took it to Los Angeles and grew it, grew it, grew it. But it was it was I would really give sort of dual credit to the philosophy background of challenging me to think about things differently, question things differently. And then also the other part of the credit to hockey and the experience that, that really did lay just an incredible foundation that has still stuck with me to, I would say, almost every day of uh, every day of my life, and in many ways, almost everything we do, I can sort of trace back to you know, lessons I learned from those foundational years. Wow, you are some kind of wild, crazy anomaly. Just from <laughs> listening to that, it sounds to me, it sounds like you're this hybrid jock, philosopher, business artist. <laughs> All wrapped into one. It's like usually people just spend their life trying to be one of these things. And you're just like dancing between these. Is it like just you don't have to be modest with me or like do things just come easy to you like that? No, no. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a I, my, my mom, my mother and I always joke that um, I was a terrible math student, like mm-hmm. terrible. But I think what's so interesting now looking back on math is that it, it's it's incremental, right? If you didn't grasp early geometry, pre-calc is going to be challenging. If you didn't grasp pre-calc, algebra, yeah, calc is right. going to be challenging and so forth. And I think for me, I, there were parts of those earlier building blocks that were really tough. But now today I, I run a company with you know, almost 50 employees and mm-hmm. we've got a portfolio of over $50 million of media transactions at any given time. And we've raised you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so numbers and the sort of uh, detail around those numbers became a gigantic part of my life that I think almost every math teacher I had growing up would say, that's not what's, that's not what's in the future for you kid. And so right. I think it was more so about recognizing the areas that you're good at and the areas mm-hmm. that I'm ultimately good at, which I think you've picked up on uh, is you can tell a story, you can spin the narrative and you can motivate people around you to want to do great work because they're really excited about working together. 
in a culture that you can build. And it took me probably 10 years to realize that that really is what I was doing my whole upbringing. I, I formed bands growing up. We had you know, the recording other other kids, you know, young youth bands and building this little record studio and uh, you know, organizing things that you know, really were bringing different people and different people's experiences and skill sets together to just maximize the output. And that's really mm-hmm. all building a business is, right? It's, it's ultimately surrounding yourself with people that are significantly more gifted to the, the way you sort of say, uh, is, is, is do things come easy? I think the thing that comes easiest now is I'm surrounded by people that are significantly smarter and more detail oriented than I am across many of these areas. And it's my job to tease out and make them the best they possibly can be. And I've always loved that. There's another quote from my dad early days, play the orchestra, don't play the instrument. Focus mm-hmm. on the orchestra. And I think if you can get to that level in terms of thinking, you'll find incredible people that want to be part of the orchestra because they really believe that you're conducting it in a, in a smart direction. Right. I just think I figured out how to bring all of our audience into this because <laughs> they sit on the other side. They just sit on the other side. They're artists. And, and back in the day when we were making commercials, I think it's everybody's dream to go and make a film. So they work their lives to save some money to make something that isn't commercially viable at all. And so they're sinking thousands, tens of thousands of dollars into expressing their art form. Yep. And you're you're coming in from a whole different side because in college you're making films and presumably you've already figured out how to make money because this is a business. This is not just like a philanthropic thing because you like the arts, right? So how from that kind of indie filmmaker mindset, what aren't they getting and what are you doing to figure out films that you can sell and actually make some money on that people will give you more money to make? Yeah, yeah it's a really good question. And I think you you made the, the comment about having the the mix of being an athlete, an artist, caring about philosophy and history. And I think that that level of curiosity is what led me to, I, I have a phrase internally that I use about with, with our whole team, especially when we have a really good, young, smart kids that come at it from, they go to film school or they go and study art or they study business and they, they come to us sort of like a, a, an unformed ball of clay. And you realize mm-hmm. you have this opportunity and it's always personally my preference to have someone that hasn't been formed by some huge corporate perspective. Uh, and they haven't had sort of the naivety beaten out of them yet. I would much yep. rather them have that and chase that creatively and passionately, knowing that every great artist you're obsessed with in film, let's just, I'll just use film as the end, film and television, they're entrepreneurs, almost equal parts, if not more so than they are artists. You look at Steven Spielberg or Lucas or David Fincher. Right. These are people that they were, yes, the catalyst was the creative and was the storytelling and was the cinematography, and was the direction, and the history of acting, and working with actors. But it became so much more. And it became so much more because they were so much more in themselves to keep pulling the thread, to be never-endingly curious, which I think is ultimately what the skill we've had, and what we've been able to instill in our own culture at at our companies. And so the way we've found, I go back to that, the earlier part of the conversation when I said Buffalo 8 was getting hired to produce these low budget films. And mm-hmm. we were we were realizing we could produce 10 of these movies a year. I think at the height we were producing six, seven, eight of them a year and, and producing commercials. And you sort of realize there's a there's a ceiling to what this can be infrastructurally as a business. 
based on these fees. Even if you're just building a very simple you know, back of the napkin forecast of, I do 10 of these at this price, at this margin, and I've got this staff to help me grow it. I'm going to keep hitting this ceiling. And I think it was that point where we realized you've got to take hold much more of your destiny. And then another really interesting thing happened. Um, I won't mention the name of the company, but I'll just say that there was a there was a production company uh, based on the Paramount lot in Los Angeles, and they hired us to basically produce what were you know, shitty B, B movies. Um, mm-hmm. And what we realized is that they had some significant intellectual property, things like Rush Hour and Conan the Barbarian and uh, Hannibal Lecter. They had very meaningful IP. But that IP was stalled in the never-ending cycle of development at the network and studio level. And so it wasn't very revenue-generating enough to really support this company that they had built over you know, 30, 40 years. And so they hired a bunch of scrappy young kids who had a scrappy young production company to produce a bunch of shitty B-movies. And that taught us the real economic structure of the entertainment business. At that point, it was almost like the you know, the, the, what's the philosophical uh, method, the, the veil of ignorance. The veil hadn't been lifted yet that this entire world existed of filmmaking because we all see it from the other side as these brilliant directors who are this, you know, sole person standing on the top of a mountain, you know, bare-chested with a flag, you know, flag waving. But actually there's a gigantic infrastructure and business behind it that has made it even possible to make the film to begin with. And so it all came full circle because we got to start going to things like the Cannes Film Festival or Berlin. Um, And these festivals aren't just events for showcasing completed content. It's actually a place where the majority of the business per year is actually done. And so we saw that this company was giving us a million dollars to go shoot this movie, but they were actually having sold the entire worldwide rights of that movie for $3 million before we even turned a camera on. Right. So if it's, you know, Van Damme or Chuck Norris or Bruce Willis or Stallone, whomever was was in these movies, they were taking that letter of commitment from the actor and the script and who was going to direct it, selling it at Cannes, giving us a portion of the of that proceed to go make the movie. And that was before we even you know, had, again, rolled frame one of a camera. And so we realized they're sustaining this business on the backs of this this model that we are powering, why don't we just go do this exact same thing? So we were 24, 25, and that was that was the catalyst to sort of realize there is a way to make money at this. But the, the phrase I have to bring it full circle is that I think 99% of people are looking in the wrong direction. I think they're so focused on a specific creative project because that is the ultimate hook that drew us all into this creative industry, what, no matter what side of it you're in. But then if you don't have a willingness to expand your mind, like I always find it hysterical when a creative will say, oh, you know, they're, they're, you, got, you bonded guys think like suits. It's like, I think we may, may think like suits, but we're going to make 50 movies this year. And we've had things nominated for the Academy Awards and we've built an infrastructure that has 50 employees. And so right. I think like a suit, but I also understand the, the responsibilities of the creative but I also think it's a it's a mistake that creatives make not to want to expand to learn the other side of it, just as much as I think it's a problem that there are plenty of huge Hollywood agents we deal with and executives that have never stepped foot on a set. And so it's really challenging to think that they can give you know guidance and, and advice and feedback when their perspective is also equally as limited. But to me, it was really just about opening up 
that uh, that window of how you take in experiences and turn that into you know, your, your your future uh, your future ultimately for us future business. Mm. Okay, so I know you're on production, and I'm looking at the time here, and I have a lot of questions that I, w- I want to ask you because this this world is fascinating to me. I'm wondering if you could just give me shorter answers. Is that okay, Matthew? Of course. Man, I, I, I just want to bomb you with a million questions, and I don't want to interrupt you. So, so like, can we try that to see what happens? Okay, because I'm ha- I'm gonna have a hard time following up on all the breadcrumbs that you just keep dropping here. Okay, there's <laughs> a lot of fascinating things going on here. So let me see if I get this straight. So what you glean from working for one of these production companies, first entering it from a production point of view, meaning like we're going to get the film made. You guys are going to figure out the payroll. You're going to just get the film made to a certain level of quality that they're going to be content with. And then that's your job, right? Correct. And then you saw the business behind the scenes, which is the brilliant part and the part I want to talk about a little bit, which is, oh my God, they already sold this movie, so there's going to be $2 million in somebody's pocket after production, which is crazy. And then you guys thought, you know, we've been on this side of it. Let's get on the other side of this and let's be the ones who broker the deal. So the key ingredients are they control the IP. So they made an investment to, to have the IP, the, the rights to produce films and derivatives mm-hmm. from the IP. They also have, which I think is the bigger part of this too, is the the network of people who are willing to buy uh, products that aren't even made yet just Correct. on concept alone right and so yep. they can pre-sale that and they can use that money to finance the film and so artists i think are looking at this from the other side which is i have this thing that i want to make and since i don't know anybody to sell it to and it's not based on ip that people get excited and there's no name person attached to it well heck you're not gonna get money for this so they mm-hmm. wind up financing it themselves and getting no distribution no deal and so that's why almost all of their films are a labor of love. Am I understanding that correct too? You are. You are. I think the only the only quick footnote I would make is not only did we want to be on the side of putting the deal together when we peeked behind the curtain and saw how how they were doing it, mm-hmm. but in that moment we realized I want to own the entire pipeline. I want to own the relationship with the creative. I want to own the side that runs the actual payroll. I want to run the yep. side that actually provides the financing. I want to put the deal together with the distributor. I want to handle yep. the delivery through post-production because at each of those turns were inefficiencies and at each of those turns were an opportunity to expand this network that ultimately grew like a like a web of a spider. Right. So you wanted to be the person to handle this thing for, for, for lack of a better uh, expression, from cradle to grave, like everything between the beginning and then you guys are just going to take on. Absolutely. I mean, today I'm now that's here and- nuts to me. That's yeah. nuts to me because you're 24 years old, having been out of school for just a few years, and you're you're already thinking like this. So I want to get into the mindset of that a little bit later. But let's talk a little bit about okay. So for everybody to uninitiated, what does it mean to produce a film? Not on the uh, brokering the IP and selling it, but just okay. Here's the script, uh, the rights. Go make it happen. Can you? Like really quickly, what is what does that mean? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll try and think. You know, put put one, the one sentence answer that I heard <laughs> one of the biggest one of the biggest producers in the world, someone who produces okay. for Martin Scorsese. They say your job is to be the chief firefighter, right? You you are literally shielding the director from all of the fires that need to be put out around them at all times, and yep. bringing them only solutions to those fires. You they shouldn't see fires ultimately. Uh, that can take the form 
of so many different things, right? Financially, cast-wise, locations, the actual crew, the unions, the distribution. Great producers can usually straddle all of those lines. They have a firm grasp of the financial. They have a firm grasp and relationships with the distributors. They have the ability to talk to actors and to creatives. They also have deep relationships with agents because the agents still are very much the gatekeepers. If an agent won't return your call, all of your content is going to be a labor of love for the rest of your career. It doesn't have to be your call. It just has to be someone you partner with, a producer. In the early days, no one took my calls either. It really was about finding that gradual stepping stone and producing Mm -hmm. alongside of someone who is a more seasoned producer. I I know we're trying to keep um, keep it quick. The... The other great comment I heard about producing is that it's one of the last apprenticeship roles in the world. And I truly Mm -hmm. believe that. I think the best producers are generally people that were trained by the best producers before them and so on and so forth, because it is part showman, part businessman, uh, part creative, uh, and part sort of wizardry being able to, to constantly problem solve. We'll be right back with more from Matthew Helderman. Good design work should clearly communicate a message. The same is true for good designers. So why present flat, lifeless product ideas? Put an interactive prototype in the hands of your manager, client, or CEO, and watch their eyes light up as they buy into your vision. Framer is your secret weapon. Start from scratch or import from another design tool. Drag and drop powerful interactive components, set up transitions, and create your own stunning animations, all without code. It's rich, realistic prototyping made easy. Sign up for free or get 20% off any paid plan by visiting framer.com slash the future. That's framer.com slash the future. Welcome back to our conversation with Matthew Helderman. You know, just talking to you reminded me of a a series called Project Greenlight, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you're familiar with, which gave everyday individuals a little peek into that world. So I, I, it's been some time since I've seen it, but I remember uh, there was the boss guy from the studio and he hired a line producer basically to run the production. And it was a nightmare for this person. Sometimes I think it was always a man, but uh, the two seasons that I saw and they were just dealing with just crazy stuff like the director, uh, usually in this series, it was the first time feature film director, and they didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know what they were doing. They weren't confident. Uh, they they most likely wrote it or accepted the script, mm-hmm. and it was just a s show the whole time. And, mm-hmm. and I don't. Sometimes you watch these things, and you're like think, thinking this thing was engineered from beginning to end to be a total dramatic thing. Is that an accurate depiction of what it's like to be a producer on a film? Yeah, I would say every physically producing content <laughs> is the most inefficient. Hoping you would say no. <laughs> no, no, it's it's horrible. It, okay. it, there's there's no other way to say it. It's it's horrible. Wow. Um, you know, physically producing is a really, 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 really tough, and in many more often than not instances, a thankless gig. Um, I, I think that's very accurate. That that. Wow. Uh, well, we, we want to sign up for that then, because you're getting beat up from everybody. The the director hates you because it's like you you I want this set and I I, I want that location and and this actress or actor and we can't get them. What are you doing? And then the studio boss is like, you got to bring this under budget. Your director's out of control. There's no way we're not gonna make any money on this thing. 
and it's just nonsense after nonsense like what kind of crazy human says like yeah that's for me yeah uh, i think i think a lot of different kind of crazy humans i think that's the other really mm-hmm. fun part about the entertainment businesses i think the creative draws the the, the good folks in um uh, there's, there's a lot of shadiness in this industry so there's a lot of producers yep. that are doing it because they the barrier to entry to become quote unquote a producer is simply putting a contract together and having someone on the other side sign it saying you're a producer on that that piece of content so you end up dealing with a lot of people that are really in it for the wrong reasons and also only in it because they think it could be a quick buck and they sort of see the glamour of the entertainment business but they don't realize it's actually one of the least glamorous businesses because it's so physically labor intensive as you know from you know, commercials and producing content it's mm-hmm. it, there's there's nothing there's nothing glorious or glamorous about a 14 hour production day when you're eating at a craft services table out in the middle on a location shoot somewhere and the reality is like you've said everyone's pissed at the producer for one reason or another i think producers do it mainly or in, in the best of sense because they believe in the content and they believe in the storyteller whether that storyteller is the writer or the filmmaker or the collaboration thereof um, but i think in the there are still many many people we deal with that are in it for the wrong reasons but most of them yeah. don't last they're, they're not in it for the long haul right so here's the other interesting thing about the project greenlight series which is the films i don't think they were wound up being great and they didn't do well mm-hmm. because the show ended. So these are, are two industry veterans in terms of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And I think the producing, uh, the, the studio boss was like a guy named Chris, I think. And how, how did they make a film that didn't work? Or was it designed not to work because it was so dramatic to begin with? Yeah. Now all of these are, uh, obviously great questions. There are movies yeah, made by like I love Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, um, and I also you know, we're 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 friends with some of the folks that were uh, involved in Project Greenlight, and um, mm-hmm. they're great they're great producers. They're, they're they're great people involved in that show at sort of every stage. I think the reality is is that it's such an unknown whether lightning is going to strike for a film. Um, mm-hmm. I also think we now live in a time where the topicality of the content is mm-hmm. so crucial. Right, film didn't used to have. There were obviously pieces of content that made political statements, or were saying something more than than just the underlying story. Right, being real social commentary, but that became something that you know, companies like A twenty four or Neon, that are really modern day pioneers of capturing the zeitgeist in a way that film did in certain ways. But there weren't, in my opinion, companies that were based purely around building a catalog and a brand around doing that. And I think the challenge with something like Project Greenlight, it's kind of like, who cares? Really? I know that's a, it's an upsetting thing to say, but you know, there are 5,000 feature films made per year pre-COVID. How many come out after COVID is, is sort of TBD as production starts right. back up. But of those 5,000 films, I think the, the reality is, who cares about so many of them? There's so much great content being produced by world-class storytellers who are now capturing things in the zeitgeist that if you're, if you're just telling a story with you know, compelling actors and high, high production values. Mm. You and I both know there's 500 of those that are new on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. We can go watch tonight. So it really is about having to transcend that in a way now that I just think is so different, even than 10 years ago when, when we started doing this, it feels like a different business. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I think if I'm hearing this, it's, you're saying that 
if you just do a film straight up like good acting, good script, that's not enough. And maybe it hasn't been enough in a long time, but for sure now it's not enough that you have to be able to kind of get a, have your finger on the pulse of what people want today and what what's hot and what they're talking about, right? And you're saying Correct. just just the sheer volume of films that are being made. So what if that one didn't work? So what? Exactly. But I look at it like from a professional pride point of view, like these two guys uh, the, who are the kind of the face of this, mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't, in my opinion, reflect well on their ability to like, yeah, you guys know what you're doing. Right, why do pick you keep picking, yeah, you can't pick winners. Like you pick these directors who have ginormous egos, who don't seem to be very grateful for the opportunity or just why not just pick someone that you know it's going to work a buddy that you have and just show us that, that it can work that this model can make money and everybody doesn't have to fight each other every minute of the day yeah i think i think i'd say two things the first mm-hmm. is the show you just described while it may have resulted in a better film it won't make great television <laughs> right we're, we're around uh, literally as i'm down here on this production now there's some some pretty uh, large celebrities and there's some pretty large um, reality personalities here. And you sort of hear you know, the amount of coaching and business uh, you know, folks around them from agents to business managers that are literally coaching the outlines that, that come in for uh, quote unquote reality television shows. There's so much coaching going on behind those shows to create ultimately great television. So the business model of selling advertisements you know, during that, that content is at a premium. And then the other piece I'd comment on about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck is look at sort of the average tenor of, of a major studio executive, especially on the creative side. I mean, you're talking three to five to six years, best case. I mean, the number of studio executives I know that have run places like Sony or Columbia or Universal or you name it, best case, you're in for a few years, right? You green light a few projects, something doesn't go right because the, the dynamics are so difficult to predict and you're out. And, and I think if, if studio executives can't do it with the amount of data and information and capital resources and the fact that they own the distribution side of the business, both television right. and theatrical, it's, I just think it's an unrealistic, it would be like being a venture capital firm and picking Facebook every single investment you make, or at least right. you know, a, a mid-level you know, IPO'd company every time you invest. And I just don't think it's possible. And so when I think about our model, it's, a, it's much more about, I'm going to hit singles, doubles, and a couple triples, and every now and again, you'll hit a home run. But I'd rather just continue getting on base to, to continue staying in the game and not to sort of you know, knock on that analogy too many times. But I think right. for most studio executives, you have to, by business model definition, swing for the fences. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately leads to you know, challenging results. Mm-hmm. So th- this is very much then a hits business that a few like home runs does that then support the the singles because are the singles profitable or you break even or are you in the hole? Yeah, I mean I think for us on on a single you're still mm-hmm. profitable, right? It's a on, okay. on every deal. Well, knock on wood, we've done 300 film and television deals with our own capital on the bonded side. Of those, two have been real challenges, primarily uh, due to things like fraud and misrepresentation on the production side. And again, that goes back to what kind of a person would want to be a producer. Unfortunately, oftentimes it's an unscrupulous person. And so right. your underwriting and the discerning nature of how you need to run that underwriting process changes over time. Of the other you know, 295 plus of those projects, 
there, I would say, are probably more heavily concentrated singles and doubles that are profitable. There are a handful of triples, and there's probably two to four to five home runs. The home runs may not, in some instances, be more economically winners than the singles and doubles. But from a branding perspective, you have Mm -hmm. something we we were involved in helping finance Loving Vincent, you know, the Vincent Van Gogh animated film that was nominated for for the Oscar and for the Golden Globe. Mm -hmm. Having a picture like that will change the trajectory of where you Mm -hmm. are in sort of the pecking order of this business in a way that it's worth, like economically it was a great win for us as well, but it also has ancillary benefits that you have to sort of look at it through that lens. And I, I know I'm trying to keep this, this quick, but I'll make a very quick comment that I think is an amazing thing for creatives to think about. Bob Iger, who obviously runs and, and now is the you know, non-executive chairman at, at, at Disney, but was the CEO right. for so many years, mm-hmm. has a comment that I always found so fascinating, which is even at Disney's level and scale, the motion picture division is really just the marketing arm for ancillaries, merchandisings, and theme parks. And until you can get that through your head, that a company that generates $10 billion plus of revenues per year from theatrical is only looking at theatrical content as a ways to drive these other divisions of the company, I don't think you've sort of unlocked the way you think. And so when we think about portfolio allocation, we think about it through the lens of, is this likely to be something that's going to hit big on Netflix or on home entertainment or theatrically? Yes, it may still just be a single or a double. But the ancillary knock-on value to the rest of our our ecosystem is going to be exponential. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, of course. Before I can finish all my questions, new questions are formed. So, uh, <laughs> of, I, I think you said three hundred, right? Three hundred films you've produced at Spondit. Yep. Okay. Of those, what percentage have broken even or made money? Yep. Just so, so I can figure this out. All of them except two have made us money. All oh, really? That's fantastic. Two. Yeah. But again, that comes back to the very early response I made, which is the way a capital stack is structured in motion picture. I don't take the equity risk at the very bottom of the totem pole. I take the risk at the very top, which is what I learned at that Mm -hmm. Paramount-based production company all those years ago when I realized they were financing these movies by pre-selling them. I I now take take that piece of risk. So the risk I'm really taking Ah. is, is the producer able to get this thing completed? Do I have enough controls around it to make sure I can help troubleshoot it if it doesn't? or if it has issues. And then the third, oftentimes biggest risk is, is the distributor who's pre-bought it going to be in business and able to pay me when I deliver them this finished movie? I got it. So you, you're talking about there's relatively low risk to you because you pre-sold it. So you have, I think, theoretically money to produce the film. So as long as the film is done and everybody fulfills their end of the bargain, meaning producer delivers you a film that you can air, and then the people who you pre-sold to actually then give you the money and they're still around, then you've already made money, right? Correct. That's exactly right. Okay. Wow. All right. Okay. So when you have made that comparison to say uh, a hedge fund manager investing or a venture capital company, my understanding is you're going to have like nine losers to one winner or something even more ridiculous, but that one winner is going to hit so big, it doesn't even matter. (laughs) So they're picking losers all the time. So this isn't actually an apples to apples comparison here, right? Because then That's right. they're losing almost all the time and just winning when it matters. Whereas you're winning almost all the time, but your 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 singles and doubles aren't going to be the next Facebook. It's not going to be like a 10,000 return on investment. That's all correct. That's all exactly okay. correct. Yep. 
Beautiful. Okay, so it's like this is like a slow and steady race. And you said like, look, we're making films. We're making 50, 60 film and TV projects a year. That's what matters to us because you just like the whole process and you're in love with the business itself, right? Yeah, and, and you also can continue to pull on that thread of curiosity to grow other okay. areas of the business. It's led to other right. you know, mergers and acquisitions and so on. So when we read in the trades uh, that XYZ tentpole picture or whatever has grossly underperformed, let's say it was a $200 million picture that's mm-hmm. doing like $100 million at the box office. So we look at, oh my God, whoever finances this thing is just, or not finance it, the, the production entity is just in the shorts on this, but most likely they've sold it for four or 500 million and they already have the 200 million. Is that me understanding this correctly? So the theatrical business is is a bit of a different animal. So those films, okay. so let's say, I think you just said a $200 million movie. So assume yeah. that it was 200 million, then on mm-hmm. top of it, they probably spent 150 or somewhere between 100 and 150 million marketing it. So right. they're in the whole 300 to 450 million bucks. Yes. What they're banking on is the return on that is not only in window one, which is theatrical. The reason mm-hmm. that Hollywood so cleverly structured it to have theatrical and to show those results is that, remember, they can carry those losses forward. So if they have huge wins in their theme park division or their television division or their merchandising division, they're carrying that loss forward for uh, for multiple years on a go-forward basis. And so the big, big difference between us is an inability to, yeah, well, I guess, I'd say the biggest difference between us is we don't have a merchandising or a theme park or a division that that kind of a loss is justifiable. That kind of a loss really hurts. Yes, you can still carry it forward, but you may not have the same revenues to to be able to justify doing so. They look at the movie business really as just the gateway of the consumer into the rest of the ecosystem of running Mm -hmm. an entertainment conglomerate. Whereas when we look at a deal, we look at it as each of the divisions of the business need to be able to stand alone in a performance perspective. That is completely the antithesis of a theatrical movie. The other thing to remember about a theatrical movie is the number of people. So when it says the movie did a hundred million and it cost 200, not only are they in the, in the red because of the marketing spend and because of the underperformance on the production budget, they're in the red because there's also the, the, the theatrical distribution fee, which is anywhere from 10 to 25%. Then there's also the premium on the marketing spend, usually somewhere around 15% or so on that 100 to 150 million investment. Then there's the actual uh, yeah, production fee and corridors. So you'd make a movie with someone like a, you know, a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt, they have a theatrical corridor. So they're making a, they're making a percentage of the gross dollars that come in. So a movie that underperforms it's, it is creating a gigantic change in the corporate financials of a studio. And so they're using that strategically on a carry forward basis based on, you know, based on that performance. Okay. So did they, um, does it still work in a, in a similar scale as, as what you were talking about? That even though the picture costs them 200 million, 150 million to market, and then all these other fees, didn't they just pre-sell it for more than that? Or No, no, not really. Not, okay. not really, no. because a theatrical movie, their hope, but also the difference, if you're Universal or Warner Brothers, 
mm-hmm. Universal and Warner Brothers have channels all over the world. So their mm-hmm. quote unquote pre-sales are already factored in to that budget because they know, okay, you know, after it goes theatrical, it's then going to go to cable. Yes, over time, they, they are generating revenues from their other uh, outlets, but they're not pre-selling it because theatrical movies, I know this is maybe getting a little too inside baseball. It's based on rate card. And the rate card is simply if the movie does a million dollars at the box, here's what the rate card is for you know, the, the Latin America and European territories for the television rights. If it does $10 million, here's what the rate card is for Latin America and European rights. It's, they don't want to pre-sell it because they don't know yet what the actual performance is going to be. And they would ultimately only be leveraging or pre-selling to, to themselves, right? You, they don't need right. the pre-sell because studios are by definition conglomerates that own the distribution infrastructure in I got it. There's, there's all three windows, right? There's theatrical, there's home entertainment, and then there's video on demand. They own those channels. So there is no one to pre-sell to. So to I them, see. it's a much more of a longer play that if something underperforms in, in window one, window two and window three become more and more important to recoup. I see. So on these, uh, for these larger conglomerates, the ones that we're used to hearing about all the time, they've got such a deep web distribution, multi just faceted companies that it's all this intertwined interlocking thing. And if they lose and they bet big, as long as they are still in business, they just write off the loss moving forward. So eventually they'll be fine if they just stay in business long enough. Right. And as long as they have a few hits to carry them, they'll be fine. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, again, this this number always is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. When Lucasfilm sold to uh, to Disney, it was, I think, yes. a $6 billion, four, it was a four or five, $6 billion deal. Okay. That's how many pieces of IP. It's Star Wars, it's Indiana Jones. Um, but beyond those, it's not, not a ton of IP. Then when recently... But it's a very good piece of IP, I just have to say. I mean, it's the best piece of IP maybe of all time. (laughs) (laughs) But then when Paramount, as a studio with 700 film library and over a thousand thousand series television library was valued at half that number, that comes back to your point about the value of IP. But it wasn't the value of just the movies. It was the brilliance of Lucas to recognize that Star Wars is a world for the consumer. Whereas Paramount never really created that IP. Yes, they have white christmas yes they have top gun they have amazing (laughs) pieces of ip they have some of the best movies ever and they're just as memorable but it's the business infrastructure wasn't built the same way around them yeah there's the video games there's the toys there's all the licensing the bed sheets and posters and mugs and everything that you could think of because it's a world it's a universe it's not just a film you experience so when i heard that he had sold it i was like well i think that was a good deal all around because we need somebody else besides George doing this now to pass it on to another generation of younger filmmakers who could maybe make film that's more in touch with what's going on. And George can do whatever the heck he wants, ultimate Correct. freedom, right? Correct. But then I also thought Disney buying it was like such a genius stroke. Like, how long does it take before they make all that money back and then some? It very, almost seems, very, very quickly. Right? Right. <laughs> it seems almost unfair that they now own Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar or Lucas and Pixar, yeah. and they basically own everything I want to watch and consume. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, I mean, again, it's I, if you, ha- if you haven't read the Bob Iger book, I would, uh, I would try, if you released it right at the end of last year and it's, yeah. it'll just like, it'll change the, and then hearing your excitement about Disney, I feel the exact same way. I think he's, it's the greatest, he's the greatest content architect 
you know, maybe in, in the history of entertainment. Mm. And he talked about it a little bit in his masterclass. I was like, wow, okay. It was like, this is the business of filmmaking. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I have a, a bunch more questions here. So let's talk about Netflix. Let's shift gears. Cause I, I know you have some properties on Netflix, but uh, can, are you allowed to disclose any kind of numbers? Yeah, I mean, what, what kind of numbers? I, I mean, they don't disclose a lot of numbers to us, so I can disclose what I have uh, available. Okay, so I, I'll, I'll ask, and then you say, "Hey, I, I can't say, or I don't want to say." Okay, so I see that net. Okay, Netflix. Uh, I think uh, a couple of months ago was now valued more than Disney. I was like, "Oh my god!" Okay, that's pretty yeah. shocking because of a lot of things that are happening right now. But then I'm watching Netflix all the time myself. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, this is a great documentary. I, I just love the variety and the volume of it. And mm -hmm. there's something in there for everybody. So I see uh, Tiger. Is it Tiger King? Tiger King. Yeah. Yeah, Tiger King. That thing went nuts, all right? So mm -hmm. the company that produced this and who, who then sold it to Netflix, how much was that thing worth? And I, I don't think the filmmakers or the production company gets a piece of the back end. There's no back end with them, right? There's no back end. Yeah, I think the Netflix has turned the business on its head in so yeah. many ways in an unprecedented way. I mean, mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest is not only is there no back end, Netflix, when they buy a piece of content, they're generally buying it in perpetuity in all rights and formats. And what that basically means is what you've just made is your producer fee or your directing or writing fee. That's it. It's over. It's a part of your resume. You're done. If it, if you're done, you're done. You yeah. own none of the intellectual property. So like you create stranger things. Obviously, that would be a gigantic merchandising opportunity. Netflix right. has historically and no, notoriously not focused on merchandising. They've been focused right. on just building the content machine. So imagine if you're you know, those Duffer Brother creators and you want the ability to go build, which clearly they do, something like a, a Star Wars-like merchandising opportunity, toy opportunity around that, that franchise, you are restricted from doing so. So they generally come in and they finance on what's called a cost plus basis. That basically means is cost plus is the total negative cost of the content. Let's say it costs $10 million to produce, whether it's a show or a film. And then they're going mm -hmm. to pay the, a, a premium. So cost plus the premium. And the premium is usually, let's call it 15 to 20%. And that is split up amongst the right holders and the producers. So the, the upside you've made on sort of a best case scenario is something like that, you know, 20%. Now, of course, people always say, well, of what costs, about things like... Right? That's 20 right. 20% of cost. Uh, 20, 20, 20, okay. 20% of, of the budget. That's, so in that instance, right, another $2 million is split. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I think the, the thing people always point to is someone like a Shonda Rhimes or a Ryan Murphy that do a gigantic mm -hmm. overall deal with Netflix. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, this is maybe super inside baseball, but basically all that really is, is like a, a studio overhead deal, meaning they're paying for your offices, they're paying for your staff, right. they're paying high fees. They get a first look at everything, but they still own your IP. So, yeah. you know, you're Ryan Murphy. You know, he was able to retain you know, ownership in things like, you know, Nip Tuck and American Horror Story. Yeah. If those existed on Netflix under the new deal he has, he wouldn't get mm -hmm. to own them. So mm -hmm. it is very much a shifting paradigm. Yes, they can pay dollar for donuts more than anyone even close, maybe other than Apple. Um, but mm -hmm. Apple is, interestingly enough, doing something pretty similar. Uh, all rights, mm -hmm. all formats in perpetuity. They're not going to give you mm -hmm. a ton of access to the data, whether one person watched it or 1 billion people right. watched it. You don't know, and your number doesn't change. Okay, so what with these uh, digital uh, distribution networks, like uh, streaming networks like Netflix, uh, uh, Apple, probably Amazon, and everybody else, 
is if they've basically converted this whole model into work for hire agreement. That's correct. Yeah, that's Which that's that's, that's, sucks. that's right. Yeah, it's horrible. It sucks. Basically, it, it is changing it. I mean, there's good and bad to everything, right? The the good is you're a filmmaker, you love making films, you don't have to sweat this stuff. They'll just help you make films. You don't yeah. have to worry about the hits and you're losing money. You you take none of the risk. They take the risk. They're just going to give you the money. And if it works, it works. It doesn't matter. Okay. But then you don't have the opportunity to build a whole business and empire like George Lucas did with Star Wars. You just can't do it. And no, you can't so I see that industry veterans like Spielberg have been very vocal about Netflix or going against Netflix, like not wanting any of the productions that come out of Netflix and these types of distribution networks to be able to be qualified for an Academy Award. Where, where do you think that's coming from? And is that a reaction to some of this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be the old guard. And I think yeah. what Netflix has done such a good job of is planting their feet on both sides of the content landscape and the technology landscape. You know, Reed Hastings, mm -hmm. CEO of Netflix, had made an awesome comment. Not not this this last two two earnings calls ago, um, at the end of a quarter, he made a comment that said, you know, "Netflix has such a low number of employees; it's incredible. It's like six thousand employees, and especially for a company worth more than Disney, as you correctly point out." And mm -hmm. so he said, you know, "Our company has three thousand employees up in the San Francisco Bay Area that believe they work at the best technology company in the world." And then we have 3,000 employees down in Los Angeles that believe they work for the best entertainment company in the world. And the best part about Netflix is that both of those groups are right. And he's been able yeah. to create that business that now has this incredibly aggressive pushback. However, unless you're a Spielberg, I mean, I, I, we deal with A-list actors and directors and producers and agents. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants, that's, Netflix is your first stop. They're quicker in yeah. their responses. They say yes, uh, you know, more, more often than not for a quality package. Uh, yep. They also have the prestige factor. Mm -hmm. The rumors about them maybe buying something like AMC or you know a theater chain so that they'll have their own uh, theatrical footprint and they'll repurpose the theatrical experience so it won't be just used for movie going, but it'll be used for you know, multi-purpose entertainment would give them a foothold yeah. for all their best films now to be Academy Award winning qualifying. So I right. think, look, I think it's an incredibly mm. smart company, obviously, with very, yeah. very uh, politically sensitive, like Ted Sarandos is one of the most well-respected, you know, head of you know, chief content officer, one of the most well-respected creatives in the entertainment business. And he knows he's way better off being at Netflix than he is being at Paramount or Disney or DreamWorks or wherever. He's so well-suited, like you've said, to touch so many different areas of creative and so many different types of audiences because he's able to greenlight things in a way that no one has ever been able to do because of the yeah. breadth that Netflix is, is, is embarking on. Oh, what a dilemma we live in. <laughs> on the one hand, right, you have somebody who's going to say yes. Somebody who's going to move quickly. Probably just get out of your business so that the artist can be the artist and yes. pay you probably more than you thought you can get paid. But then that, they cap off the back end. It's like there's no perfect world here. On the Correct. other model... It's like slow. We prove this. We're going to make changes and you don't have the artistic freedom and the prestige. It's like, what the heck? But you might make it really big and you can own it. And, and that could be your legacy. Wow. It's like there's a little bit for everybody. Yep. So I, I'm just curious, though. So they, they buy the rights to the Tiger King and I think it's just uh, like a cultural beast. Yep. The people who produce this thing, what what are like numbers that they looked at and like what did they sell themselves for? 
Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, we finance on the bonded side, um, mm -hmm. probably the largest unscripted content company that does business with Netflix. And the mm -hmm. average budgets range anywhere from $200,000 per episode to $750,000 per episode. That's the total budget. So there may be some breakage, meaning they might pay that premium that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're not talking huge numbers. I mean, you're talking maybe no. maximum a million dollars an episode. So wow. not much. You're a work for hire, as you said. Right. Yeah. I guess in, in, in the doc film world, that sounds like a ginormous number, but episodic television, that's nothing, right? Correct. That's just, Correct. wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Okay, tell tell me a little bit about how you decide what projects that you want to put your money behind, like your own money, like the the money that you've worked hard to get. Like how how do you decide like from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a three-step process. The, the first is what's the what's the collateral or the guarantee or the security behind this? Is it a distribution contract? Is it multiple mm -hmm. distribution contracts? Is it distribution contracts plus a tax credit? Um, how real is that's point number I mean, that's bucket number one. First off, mm -hmm. does the project have a real security package and, and a structure? Bucket mm -hmm. number two, or or sort of method number two of, of looking through that lens, is really determining the team that's going to be boots on the ground running it. Do you trust them? Do you believe that it ultimately uh, is going to get over the finish line? Every project, as you going back to your project greenlight example, every project's a nightmare. Every project's dealing yeah. with so many problems. Um, and so ultimately, you know, you need someone with a steady hand and great bedside manner that's going to steer it through when that inevitably mm -hmm. happens. And then the yeah. third bucket is, is it, a, is it the right place for our capital? Frankly, we look at you know, literally a thousand plus inbound financing opportunities a year across film and television and podcasts and sports and digital content, and new media. And if it's not the right place for our capital, risk or structure or pricing wise, we, we have the luxury at this point in where we are as a company to pass on something. We end up having, we've, we've missed on things that I wish we had, we had financed. Um, mm -hmm. But we've, we've also you know, been, uh, you know, knock on wood, good stewards of the capital that we have. And that's why we've been able to win the confidence of big time investors and institutions that have supported us in the growth and believe just as you know, the, the team does around us, that the trajectory we're on will continue to discern the investment decisions through those three lenses in a process while not losing sight of working and partnering with great teams and great creative to make sure it gets over the line. But above everything else, is the security there that's going to get us comfortable? Or you know, like I think I could have put, put capital into some of the biggest movies with some of the biggest movie stars in the world, and I would have lost all that money. If I had sort mm -hmm. of played the game you know, a Tom Cruise movie comes across your desk or 1917 comes across your desk. These things come across our desk you know, weekly, but it's mm -hmm. all about where are you structured in that finance plan, right? You're not just buying a ticket to a premiere and the ability to say, my name's on that movie. We want to be in this for 30 years and we want to build something big and, and, and you know, that we'll have a legacy long before or long after we're not running it. And if I took those crazy risks, even though I loved the, the finished product of that content, I'm not getting my money out. And so it is this, going back to your earliest comment about my personality of balancing those sort of conflicting uh, personality traits or types, 
you do have to have that internal conflict when you make these investment decisions that the creative might be amazing and the team might be excellent, but the security sucks. And I, I have a good yeah. sense that my intuition tells me we're going to lose our money in this structure. And so you have to pass. Yeah. You have to be a wise and disciplined investor when it comes to this stuff, right? Like your heart might say, do it. This is going to be hot. And then you're going to eat it in the shorts because the other variables don't work for you. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, Netflix has been and buying a lot of comedy specials. Uh, mm-hmm. When you talked about a docuseries going for two hundred dollars to $750,000 per episode, what is the budget for a comedy special? Very, very similar. We, we've been involved really? in comedy special content. It's been anywhere from a quarter of a million dollars, maybe less, maybe mm-hmm. $200,000. All the way, I mean, like the Chappelle stuff is crazy, but that's a yeah. different... Right, they're they're buying you know exclusive Chappelle. And right, that, that, well, that's, Chappelle that's a different, is a different category. Yeah. Correct, correct. I'd say two hundred thousand up to a million. Okay, all right. Well, this sheds a lot of light on that because I thought these guys are now rolling in the cash and they're not. They some. still have to produce work. Yeah, some some they are. They still have to work. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So here's my, here's my, I guess my last question for you, uh, mindful of your time and all. And I, th- I think I could talk to you hours about all the geeky stuff that you're like, I wonder if anybody's paying attention to this at this point, but I, I am. So <laughs> I, I would love to get your forecast. Just give me three predictions on some big moves that haven't happened yet. And let, let's like, I want to get your, your pulse on the industry. Um, absolutely. I'd say the first is Amazon buys either Amazon or Disney by a uh, theatrical uh, theater chain, um, uh-huh. I think within the next 12 months, maybe maybe okay. 12 to 24 months. Uh, I think that's number one. I think number two, uh, and I think the reason being is the diversification of their business model allows them to use that foothold in real estate in such a different way and to repurpose uh-huh. the entertainment experiences in those venues in a way that theater chains that operate as just true traditional theater chains cannot do. Right, uh, and they they can, and if anyone can make those businesses profitable, it's it's Disney and Amazon to to figure out where to squeeze money out of those those real estate holdings. Right, and I think if they just wait long enough, AMC would be cheap. I think that's right. I don't think they're even have to wait that much longer. <laughs> right, it's like it's on the edge, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think theatrical business changes in terms of who owns that 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 business. I think right. The second thing is that home entertainment becomes a, a real venue for big tentpole movies, which I know is Mm. the antithesis of what we think of with summer theatrical uh, and so on. But seeing how COVID required theaters, I'm sorry, required studios to rethink a theatrical release and then pushed experiences like Trolls uh, to home entertainment, and they end up generating close to, if not greater economic reward from doing so. Mm. Obviously the dollars are gonna dictate that decision, and if you yep. don't need to pay the expensive, you know, crazy marketing costs to drive people to a movie theater, um, I think you're going to make that decision. So I think that becomes a standoff between the theater owners, which is, you know, there's a there's a, literally an organization of the theater owners and right. a, a standoff of them versus studios. Um, and I think that we've seen some of that already happening during COVID. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that because there's just no need to go traditional theatrical. And then I think the third prediction, I guess I could make you know, a number of them. Um, mm-hmm. Anything from, you know, as, you, as you know, I'm, I'm down here on a, a set at the moment on a film that got shut down during COVID 
and after being halfway through production is now starting back up. The challenges right. that face production are significant. And I'll say that firsthand, having been in production meetings nonstop the last several days down here. I think there are certain areas and certain films, I think TV type content made for TV type content. So things with less big star names. Um, I think that's, that is easier and more likely to be something that can be produced without too many hiccups. Things that are bigger budgeted, you know, this film had a two, and I'm on down here, had a 200 person crew prior to mm. COVID. That crew is now down to 102 people. Um, there are four actors that are essential elements in the distribution agreement. And ultimately what that means is if we don't have them or even one of them, the collateral shifts and drops out. And so if one of them tests positive for COVID, are you shutting down temporarily? What does that knock on effect look like for the rest of the crew? Uh, meaning our right. crew members feeling like they're not safe and so on and so forth. Right. I don't know how long that goes. I think people that think that there's a vaccine or uh, you know, that we're flattening the curve and we're going to be back at work normally in three, six, nine, 12 months. Film is, is such an incredibly nuanced thing with all of these people and departments working together in one space. I don't know how you can achieve that unless you bifurcate this risk in some way that right now, frankly, even with really smart producers and production folks on this project, I don't see it happening yet. So yeah. my, my prediction on that would simply be the kind of content we see is going to be produced in a different way when it is produced, but the majority of content being produced is going to be smaller footprint, smaller impact, um, and that will likely change the way unions are going to fight for their workers, uh, meaning there's just less of them working. It'll also mm -hmm. change the way and the ways in which how, the, the speed at which we're able to shoot and make our days is going to change. Right? If, if a, my understanding from having gone to a set yesterday was if a light needs to be changed or an adjustment needs to be made for the director of photography, the entire set clears. Every single department that's already isolated in their own literally a quadrant has to get off the stage so the director of, and the director of photography can make that change. That is going to take a gigantic toll on the ability to get through a day of production unless you just pre-light and don't change anything the entire day, which we know, right. you know great cinematographers are never going to go for. No. So I just I think there's there's structural changes coming to the distribution of the business. There are business changes coming at the sort of conglomerate level. Uh, and then there are also production changes coming with you know, how we're going to, how we're going to make content for the next year, year plus. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I've been thinking about the same things. Um, I, I'm wondering in, in some, some kind of fantastical solution, film Island appears where it's totally isolated and everybody that's on the Island is quarantined for 14 days or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then once you're cleared, you're not allowed to leave. And once you leave, you're, you're done. And then that way, everybody's safe. That you can do whatever you need and you can move kind of at the same speed. But yep. people who are sitting around thinking that just wait this out, everything will come back to normal. Probably no that's chance. not the smart play. Yep. Right. Okay. Wow, Matthew, this was super informative. And I think you gave, you gave me a really kind of an insider's peek into the world of filmmaking. This is so fascinating for me. I hope our audience enjoys this. And if they want to get more or learn more about you, where should they go? They can check out on the websites at Buffalo 8, Buffalo, like the animal, 8, like the number, dot com, or bondit, B-O-N-D-I-T dot U-S. 
Uh, and then also same handles on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, would, would love to certainly always open our doors, certainly open to hear. Uh, we've, we've made projects with people from every walk of life, from really experienced, uh, seasoned executives and, pro- and producers and, and directors and writers, all the way down to first timers. And we're always interested in uh, hearing from people. So certainly welcome any wow. anyone to reach out. That's very generous of you. And I'm sure some people will reach out with their projects. Great. I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you again for taking the time in. My name is Matthew Helderman, and you are listening to The Future. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to the future and want to know more about our educational mission, visit thefuture.com. You'll find more podcast episodes, hundreds of YouTube videos, and a growing collection of online courses and products covering design and business. Oh, and we spell the future with no E. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. This episode was mixed and edited by Anthony Barrow, with intro music by Adam Sanborn. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's a tremendous help in getting our message out there. And, you know, it lets us know what you like. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you.